I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the master's program. Tracy Avalar is a captain in the Foster City Police Department and has been with the agency for 16 years. She joined Foster City a little later in life after an initial career doing litigation-related investigations for commercial insurance companies. She applied to the NPS program at the urging of her boss. With four kids, one of whom is already in college and two others about to head off, she didn't think she would have the time, knowing that she would be gone for two weeks every three months. To which her boss replied, as he was putting the letter of recommendation on her desk, you can't turn it down until you get in. Well, she got in. Tracy's decision to write about the use of force was inspired by the release of 30 guiding principles by the Police Executive Research Forum. PERF recommended that their standards, which exceeded the existing Graham v. Connor standard of reasonableness, be adopted. Tracy wanted to study what the effect of going beyond current legal standards might have on use of force incidents, as well as determine if these principles could make policing safer for officers and the public they serve. When I arrived for the interview, Tracy greeted me with a proposition. Would I like to go through a use of force scenario? After a moment's hesitation, I agreed. What better way to understand the interview topic than to experience it? Well, I ended up dying twice. Listen to the segment after the interview to hear more about this eye-opening experience. Your thesis comes at a time when we continue to see media coverage around the perceived excessive use of force by police officers. So what was the inspiration for you looking into this? I saw the media and the public and even politicians were reacting to several high-profile use of force situations, and there was a narrative beginning to form. And at the same time, there was the Police Executive Research Forum had put out this document, actually a few documents, one of them being 30 Guiding Principles on Use of Force. I believe in what they write, but to write it as a policy it was mind-boggling to me that they could call it a policy when, number one, it was the sanctity of human life should be at the heart of everything an agency does. That's not a policy. If you don't value or your officers don't value the sanctity of human life, you have a hiring issue. You know, the idea that we should be judged higher than Graham B. Connor and, and that we should de-escalate. And of course, that's what we do all day long as police officers. Just the, the, the policies that they put out, we do that all day, every day. Justified force is still ugly to see. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to take a life or put their hands on someone. And if they do, then they are not right for the police force. One of the things that you talk about that as a layperson, I, I need to understand a bit better, the difference between an acceptable and excessive use of force. It's based on an officer's perception at the time Graham v. Connor does not allow for that 2020 hindsight to judge what someone did at the moment that they were in that interaction with the person who they didn't know what they were going to do, or it was a phone they pulled out or something and say, I would have thought it was a phone. I would have known it was a phone. I would never have shot them. It's, it's easy to say that. And so that's why the law allows for the police officer to have their perceptions or, or, you know, their findings or what they're seeing at that moment and not be judged on it 
based on looking at it either through a video or through an explanation through a report or something. That gets to some of the key concepts that are in your thesis. Two of them I want to zero in on. The idea of objective reasonableness and the totality of the crimes. That's kind of being a litmus for evaluating whether or not an officer is justified in using force. So this seems rather ambiguous as different people are going to define what reasonableness is. Where does the definition come from? It comes from the Granby Connor that it's like a three-pronged test. The objective reasonableness is based on the totality of the circumstances. So you get the objective reasonable test based on all of these different factors. Now, if I at 5'9 am dealing with someone on the street who is punching me in the head, or there's someone, another officer who's 6'3", 260 pounds, he's going to be able to maybe fight that person a little better than someone who is 5'9", 150 pounds. You can't judge the force that officer who's 5'9", 150 pounds uses But all of these training and experience, the uh, mindset of the officer, the the situation that was around them, were were they by themselves or was there a group of people surrounding them? It's just all the different factors that go into it is the totality of the circumstances. And so that is how the objective reasonableness is judged. It's ambiguous because every single situation is different. You can't say if this, then that. It doesn't work. So we're we're speaking clinically, these things will be tried in, in the media, right? The media is going to, someone will have a cell phone video and they'll show something, but then it gets to what may exist in, in, in a courtroom. So you're going to have a, a jury who may be making this same decision. So typically in the media, you're seeing little snippets and you don't get all the information and you don't get instruction from the judge or the court on what you're supposed to be seeing or how you're supposed to judge this. It is, it's a situation where courts have a ton more information than you do in the 20 second video you see on social media or on the news. Of course, it's going to be judged differently in a courtroom than it is on social media. So, So speaking of social media, the videos get out. A lot of the narrative is often that it is a black versus white, white officer, pulling over and then using excessive force on a on a, a black in, individual. How, how does that complicate all of the, the challenges with the use of force that's going on? I like to say that race is not involved, but it, it's involved because it's in either the person that's the suspect. It's in their mind that, hey, they're picking on me because of my race. If they feel like they're being singled out or contacted just because of their race, then that that's a horrible thing. I mean, I can't imagine that that would feel good. That's why I, I can't say race is not involved. Typically, most police officers don't pull someone over because of their race. They pull them over for whatever their violation is. Now, the, this whole narrative that it's about only race, I don't think that you can say, no, it's not, because they feel it is. So do you know what I mean? So you can't just dismiss it. Perception is reality. Whether right, it's happening, exactly. happening or not, if the individual feels that that's what it's about, then that is part of the conversation right. about it. And that's, you know, there's a lot of uh, procedural justice training going on, racial bias training, all of that kind of thing to try and ensure that, okay, 
let's make sure this is not happening. Like, do, do you have a, a bias that you don't realize you have or how to, how to realize your biases or how to not act on biases or, you know, so there's a lot of that going on right now, all, all about um, training, especially in California. I can't speak for other States, but, and then body worn cameras as well. So we can see what people are doing. We can make sure that officers are respectful and they're not going out there and amping up contacts. They're de-escalating contacts. To be honest with you, since we got our cameras, I have not seen a difference in how officers behave. I've worked with them and I see them work now and they're not behaving because they have cameras. So you devote one of your thesis chapters about the narrative. Police is the bad guy. Why do you think that narrative advanced so quickly? After the Michael Brown incident, the narrative is easy now because of social media, because of videos, because of everyone is a producer with their cell phone camera you can see these use of force situations happening readily. And then when a, when a young man dies in the Michael Brown situation, it's horrible. You mentioned earlier that your officers may have millions of contacts in, in a year, but it may be only a handful that actually have some type of negative outcome. Those are then the ones that seem to get promoted the most right. or seen on social media. Well, and he, he was alleged to have been unarmed. When you have a, a teenager who, he was over 18, he's still a teenager, and he's unarmed, that's what they promoted, an unarmed teenager. And again, I'll say, you know, a life loss is, is horrible, no matter what. It, it was a situation in what, you know, it was in court, proven that it was a justified shooting, and that a lot of the narrative that came out of that was false. Remember the hands up, don't shoot. That was proven to be false. That narrative is still out there today. So that's the social narrative put forward. This is a master's thesis. We rely on data. So the what data did you find and what story does it tell? I think the most vocal people are the, the most negative and the most pro. There's a huge middle ground that just doesn't say anything. On the side of the negative towards police, it was very negative, very violent. I'm sure there are bad cops out there, but the situations that we're seeing are not someone looking to murder someone for the mm. heck of it. Following the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, and now I'm quoting from your thesis, you said public and political sentiment ranged from frustration to hatred towards law enforcement and that this contributed or led to the killing of five officers in, in Dallas and a 70% increase, over 70% increase in law enforcement deaths. How did the addition of voices from political representatives change the sentiment around this? So the politicians are elected by the people, so they, they are the people's voice. So when they speak, either they're in the newspaper or they're videoed or whatever, their words matter. So when they come out without all the facts, condemning a situation without knowing what the facts were, it becomes fact. Just because of the weight of who they oh, are and that they say words, it. Right. I have not seen anyone that's been on a platform where it would reach me call for calm. I haven't seen anyone say, let's wait for the facts. We need compliance. We need people to comply with lawful police orders. Nobody called for that. And so without calling for compliance for the, with the police, we saw, even in here, even in my small little town, we saw traffic stops where people would just take off consistently. That's just never been the case in all my years as a police officer. 
So you don't have to comply with the police because they're never right is kind of the theme that's going on. Does that continue now or have things changed? I think it's slowed down a little bit. I think different laws and propositions may have increased property crimes and things like that. But um, as far as compliance, I, I think, you know, here, obviously across the United States, it's different for every jurisdiction because you have different environments everywhere. But had we heard from some of the major players, major politicians, some words of calm, some some call for compliance with the police. There was an uh, an activist in Arizona who was calling for a police officer's gun and badge after he had shot someone. And this activist was invited to a use of force scenario. And after that scenario, the activist had actually shot, I think, two times, two people who were unarmed. And he just was amazed at the end of it that how important compliance is. That's what we're talking about on the police side is you have to comply with the lawful order, whether it's, can you come over here and talk to me, please? If it's a legitimate lawful order and someone doesn't comply, no matter where it is on the, on the, on the scale, there was, uh, what was it? I think it was policy number four or five. Oh, three. Police of force must meet the test of proportionality. So if I'm stopping someone who's jaywalking, and they don't comply and they, you know, flip the bird and keep walking, I'm only supposed to do what? So that, that it's proportional. Let them leave. Our, our job is that we enforce the law. So if we have people crossing in the middle of a major intersection or major street, and it's causing traffic concerns and concerns for the people involved, and, and we try and stop that person, it's very low level. We're not saying they're trying to murder someone, but where's the proportionality there? Like an, an, an officer is responding to a call. They have the duty to uphold the law. They have the perf requirements that your thesis really focuses on. They have all this public sentiment that's on them. They're getting it from all these different angles. How do they reconcile all of this while at the same time doing their job and keeping people safe? Well, the perf requirements policies are not, we don't officially have those. But like I said, we live by all of them just because that's how we work. Of course, we value human life. Of course, we de-escalate every single thing that we can. Often, it's not in our control that we can de-escalate it. If someone's not going to de-escalate, we can't just say, okay, never mind. Sorry, we contacted you, sir. Go on your way with your knife and your whatever. If he's trying to harm someone, or he has harmed someone, I keep saying he could be he, she, or they are committing a crime, then it's different. But we as officers now have to deal with the public thinking that this perf document is what we weren't doing. We didn't value human life. We weren't de-escalating. And that's just not the case. And then we have the public out there. We, we, we fortunately work in a community that is very supportive of our police department. And I know that's not the case for many police officers, and it's discouraging. In fact, some agencies have been weary of enforcing crime, enforcing laws, and some say that it has increased crime. Some haven't used force when they should have and have been injured. So they're afraid to use force. They're afraid to pull their weapons because they don't want to be the next person on the news. And so they just get beat and knocked out because they're willing to take that as opposed to being the next person that's on the news. Your your thesis, you've, you finish it with some thoughts about where to go from here 
and you provide recommendations for sort of four different groups. What are some of the key points? So obviously it's training. And in that training that I talked about earlier, it's, you know, making sure that everyone understands what's expected of them and how to, how to use force appropriately when necessary, when not to use force, how to treat people. So training is, is very important. Not jumping to conclusions for the, our leadership, whether it's law enforcement, politicians, all of that, and actually saying how important compliance with the police is. There are avenues if you feel you've been wronged by the police that's not in the street. It's in, in the court or through an internal investigation a complaint to the police department, all of those ways. You can complain about an officer in any police department and that that will be taken. But you can't fight the police in the street. You can't just keep going and going and going, no, 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 no. That's what leads to increasing, ramping it up, and then possibly a fight. And then my major takeaway is compliance and the fact that these policies written through PERF are not applicable as written. They cannot be a policy as written. Like I said, that's, they are how we work every day other than not shooting at vehicles. I mean, if you have a vehicle driving down the sidewalk mowing down pedestrians, I don't know what they want you to do. In your recommendations, you don't direct anything to the community. Was, was that on purpose? Basically, I was dealing with this as a policy and would it be effective. Citizens are not governed by policy. So police department, we are. And politicians' policy is very important and leadership. So most of it is for us regarding this policy and going forward. So we don't want this policy. What do you want? You can't tell citizens, hey, follow this policy. But you, you mentioned earlier on, if politicians and others were to take the narrative forward of follow the instructions an officer may be giving you, contribute to the safety of both individuals in any type of interaction. And you can video. I mean, people have their phones. They can video. They can comply. And and they can feel like they were wronged or singled out or, or whatever. And again, there's processes in taking complaints and there's, and there's avenues that they have later on. But at that moment, it's critical that the person being contacted comply with the police. Writing a thesis is a significant commitment. What were some of the challenges you had and how did you overcome those? The biggest challenge for me was starting with wanting to take on this PERF report and then kind of being guided in another direction and then circling back after a long period of time back to it. So, you know, I went through all different deciding basically what to write on was the hardest part. Once I decided, it just kind of came out, obviously, with the help of my advisors, huge help from my advisors. <laughs> that I think that was the most difficult part for me. And when I talk to people about the program, I always say, you know, Start thinking now about what you would want to write about should you get into the program. It, it's so easy to think big, but then you have to actually right. narrow it down and say, this is my research question. This is what I really want to investigate. What would you say to a prospective applicant? Do it, do it, do it. I say it all the time. I'm always looking for people, telling them about the amazing people that I met, the amazing instructors, the program itself. At the time, horrible and hard, but... So worth it. So worth it. What type of people do you think are most successful in the program? For my cohort, there was such a varied group. I, I mean, I think anyone can be successful if they have, you know, they have to have writing skills. And, um, and even that, there's a lot of help. You have to be able to articulate yourself a little bit. The, the commitment 
to the program and to say, you know, no matter what, I am going to finish this program and my thesis. That's what I would say. If you don't have the commitment or the drive to do it, because doing the program and not completing your thesis at the end would be so devastating to me. There was no way, no way. So if you if you can commit to doing that, then I say 100% go for it. Before interviewing Tracy, she gave me the opportunity to participate in two use of force scenarios to help me understand common situations faced by officers and the split decisions that are needed to manage an escalating situation. So, in the spirit of trying new things, I was given a standard utility belt with a Glock handgun loaded with simunitions, some basic instruction on firearm use, and off I went. My goal in both scenarios was to make contact with the subject, attempt to de-escalate, and resolve the situation. The first scenario was a vehicle stop for expired tags. I approached the vehicle, asked for the license and registration, and was met with unruly passengers frustrated that they had been pulled over for no reason. I began walking backwards to my patrol vehicle, and then the driver got out and started approaching me, reaching into his back pocket to show me proof of insurance on his phone. Then the passenger got out and started coming towards me. I could see a handle extending from his front pocket. Was that a hairbrush or a knife? My attention returned to the driver, badgering me and not following my instructions to back up and return to the vehicle. I was loud. I was firm. But he kept coming. Why wouldn't he do just what I said? This wasn't good for either of us. I began to take my gun out of the holster. Hey, policeman, said the passenger. When I looked back at him, his gun, I don't know where that came from, was pointed at me. Bang. One minute, I think, had passed since the scenario started. And if I was an officer, I wasn't going home to my family. The second scenario was a domestic disturbance call. I arrived at an apartment, the gym in this case, to find a man with his back to me, hunched over saying he couldn't go on. I asked him what had happened and that the police were concerned for his safety. He turned around with the gun to his head. I can't go on, he said. This time I took out my gun. I pointed at the subject. It'll be okay. Put your gun down. I can't do anything until you put the gun down. He didn't. He turned towards me. The gun was still pointed at his head. He was becoming more agitated. Was he going to turn the gun on me? Didn't I just die 10 minutes ago in the last scenario? Should I shoot him? Where? I don't want to kill him. He needs help. Shit. I'm in a room with a man who has a gun and there's only one door. How quickly can I get out? Well, it doesn't matter anymore. I just died again. After the scenarios were over, I talked to Tracy about my experience. She said, you didn't want to shoot, did you? No, I replied. I don't think officers do either. But when the subject doesn't comply, the situation gets more tense, more complicated, and more dangerous for everyone. Special thanks to the lieutenant, sergeant, and officers who were role players and convincingly put me in challenging situations and were willing to get shot in order for me to appreciate the dangers they face every day. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Tracy Avalar's thesis, A Race to Force the Issue, A Use of Force Doctrine in Policing. For more information on this research, visit the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Race to Force the Issue. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future Homeland Security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. 
For information on the master's, executive leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.